Hello, and welcome to this Coupa HR podcast. This year is Coupa HR's 75th anniversary. HR and higher education has come a long way over the past 75 years. For this series, emerging Coupa HR leaders set out to discover lessons from the past, present, and future of higher ed HR by talking with several outstanding leaders in our profession. Each of our guests has received Coupa HR's highest honor, the Donald E. Dickinson Award which was named for the association's founder and first president and recognizes outstanding contributions to Coupa HR in the profession. Join us as we pick their brains and solicit their advice about higher ed, HR, and Coupa HR. Okay, welcome everyone. My name is Aisha Lanique Kidd. I'm Associate Vice President of Organizational Development and Effectiveness at the College of Southern Nevada in Las Vegas and a very proud Coupa HR Emerging Leader. And I'm Sherry Youngman, Senior Talent Acquisition Professional with the University of Colorado, Colorado System Administration Office. And we are joined today by Jeff Giarusso, Retired Executive Director of Human Resources at the University of Massachusetts Lowell and the 2013 Donald E. Dickinson Award recipient, and also Stuart Mixon, Chief Operations Officer at the Medical University of South Carolina and the 2009 Donald E. Dickinson Award recipient. And they have offered to share some of their Coupa HR stories and professional insights as we celebrate 75 years of this association for higher ed HR professionals. Thank you both for being here. We're gonna go ahead and get started. Um, thank you with a few questions. And we're just gonna vacillate back and forth between Sherry and I as we ask you a couple of questions. Okay. All right. So to start, can you tell us about a favorite Coupa HR memory you have, maybe a moment that made you feel especially connected to your Coupa HR colleagues or a contribution that you were particularly proud of? Well, um, uh, you know, looking at these questions and, and trying to limit it down to one or two, and they, they fall into a variety of ranges, but you know, some of them are uh, the relationship building that took place and in, in, in some way the, the culture changing aspect of, of what uh, Cooper HR was be, before and became uh, while, while I was there and, and connected to people like Stuart and others that became good friends as well. And then there are the, the, the more structural types of things that occurred um, when I was on the board and chaired the board. Um, and, some of those I'm, I'm most proud because they are long, they are long standing and they have uh, continued in that, from that period of time. Um, one of the things that we did was to change the makeup of the board of, of directors. Um, it originally at the time there had been five regions and two representatives from each region, plus the executive board, the president, president elect, uh, past president, and treasurer, um, and that was the makeup of the board. Um, there was the, the growing parts of the, of the organization. The large groups were in the regions that Stuart and I represented, which were the East and the Southern. Um, the Midwest was fairly stable, but the Southwest and the Northwest, um, you know, were, were fluctuating in, in their size and so forth. So. Uh, one of the decisions we made was to cut it down to four uh, regions. Um, 
and we introduced um, uh, the concept of at-large representatives to the board. Um, so these would be individuals who, that, you know, let me back up saying that the typical way that people got onto the national board was you spent a few years in the chapter, you got onto the region board, you got on that for a few years, and then you became one of two individuals from that region that were assigned to the national board, essentially. Um, the nature of what we did in the chapters and regions at that time were, I would say, 95% volunteer, as opposed to now, which is so much more staff driven from the national office. So we did all the planning for regional conferences. I mean, right down to the brochure and every aspect of it, um, registrations, you name it, we did it all. Um, and uh, so therefore the skills that it took to be active in Cooper HR were as much uh, event planner as HR um, professional. And, and the need was to start representing, you know, uh, bringing people into the national board that brought um, that same willingness to work hard, but also to um, you know, recognize that they didn't have to be involved in planning events to the same extent, that they really needed to be looking at the direction of the organization and how it would, um, how it would serve its members. So having been on the board when we made the first initial change from five regions to four, and then added um, a couple at-large members to keep the, the number the same was the first thing we did. The second thing was to then um, convince the regional boards that we wanted to change the makeup again and have only one representative from each of the regions and then additional at-large members. Well, essentially what we said is that we were the only board that really didn't pick our members. Um, and while it, that we weren't complaining about the nature of other members, there were people in, our, in the organization who were great performers and brilliant people, but just never got into the Coupa, Coupa HR or Coupa um, mainstream of you know, chapter region national. They would just, you know, we would have them on committees and so forth. I'll, uh, one of the other people who's uh, that I use as a prime example is Barbara Carroll, uh, who, who was not a, a chapter region person, but was brilliant. And we were on a few phone calls with her. And I remember saying to Andy, we've got to get this person on the board. And of course, Andy loved her and knew her. That type of thing where we had to recognize um, people who were out there in the system who needed to be. And, you know, one of the effects of that was to open up the organization and to break down some of the clickiness that had existed. Um, the example I used to give is that if I went to a conference and didn't know anybody, I may have come home and not known anybody. Um, I'm not the type of person who doesn't get to meet people. You know, that's not how we would do things, but the organization was so close and so tight. So while it wasn't the prime reason for doing so, it was, a, it was the result of, of finding different ways to attract more talent to our board and to the organization. And it, it reduced some of the exclusionary nature of it, whether that be um, 
just people who came from different types of organizations, different types of colleges that couldn't get involved, people that would bring um, different kinds of skills that we needed, uh, whatever they were, it was a way of doing it. The, the other thing that I felt most proud about in, uh, from, from the board's uh, sense was developing a system whereby um, our strategic initiatives would be the, um, would, we would develop our action plan. So what we're gonna do based on the strategic initiatives. Um, that may sound rather obvious, but at the time we really weren't there. Um, the organization was changing. Uh, it was really needing to say, how do we become less operational? How do we become more strategic? How does that all play out? And so um, those are the um, organizational structural kinds of uh, issues that I'm most proud about that occurred uh, while I was there or under my leadership and uh, uh, tremendous. The, the other side, as I mentioned earlier, is the relationship issue. Um, the, the simple way to answer that is if we were at a national conference and there was an individual with a Cooper HR badge on sitting alone in a restaurant, bar, whatever, we would not allow that to continue. They, they could choose not to join us, but they would always be invited. So, so nobody would not feel that they were part of it. it. Again, it may not seem like much, but at the time it was a change in how, uh, how the organization was seen by its members and uh, how we develop a different kind of camaraderie and a different kind of inclusion that I don't believe existed to that extent beforehand. Stuart, do you have? Sure. Um, I, I, I think Jack has hit on a lot of important things there. One is the, the networking. We've talked about that very significantly. Jack and I would probably never, ever have met uh, had it not been for the Coupa. And we are lifelong friends today. And, and the, the association there, uh, the, the camaraderie, uh, you just can't put a price on that. So there's, there's a huge value and, and what Cuba does in bringing people from disparate areas of the country and disparate backgrounds together and uh, gives us the opportunity to make friendships. Um, one of my favorite stories in that regard is uh, we have a colleague and friend by the name of Greg Walters, a seven footer, 400 pound man, uh, was in the north, uh, east, uh, northwest uh, region. And uh, about 2002, I think there was a, a, an Olympic games where Canada beat uh, the U.S. in hockey, and in that process, uh, Greg was a, a, a seven-footer. His favorite sport was hockey. Um, we were at the uh, uh, Salt Lake City Arena there, and we were, we were hitting some hockey pucks, and he's the only one that could elevate that puck off the ice. It was, it was amazing to see, but as a, 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 a gift for him as he was leaving his post as the regional chair, they gave him a hockey puck. And I looked at the man and he opened it up and he said, oh, well, this is nice, a hockey puck. I've had plenty of them in my life. And, and suddenly somebody said, turn it over. And so he turned it over and it was a hockey puck from the gold medal game between Canada and the U.S. And the man had tears in his eyes for re receiving a gift of that kind. That's sort of the association. People knew what kind of gift would be important to him. And so um, 
that's just priceless to me. You can't put a price on that. One of the most significant things that we did when I was on the, the board, uh, and by the way, Jack mentions that the, the process is different today. I spent 10 years of my life serving in uh, associational leadership position with Coupa. That's a long commitment. And so I, I really appreciate the new structure and, and how it allows people that may not want to make a 10-year commitment like a Barb Carroll, a, a colleague of ours, um, uh, to serve without having to go through all of those many steps. And then also that process, you may get somebody that was appointed by the regions. And at that time, each of the regions were different as to how we appointed people to the national board. You might got somebody that was not very well vested and we had to replace a person or two because of that, because they just weren't representing us well at the national level. But I was on the board and I was, uh, I think, uh, uh, ch chair elect or what we call president elect at the time when we made a decision to move out of DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. to uh, Knoxville. And that was a significant decision. We had all of the folks that preceded us in the region that thought it was a terrible move for us to leave Washington. We had uh, super majority votes that we were taking at the Toronto National Conference where after the evening's event, all the board members would come together and we would hash out whether we were gonna move out of Washington. And our challenge in Washington was we could not find a really good nucleus of staff. We had some good uh, leaders, but we couldn't, based on our pay scale, we couldn't find really great people to staff the organization. And in fact, one of, one of the things that uh, I tell people that during my tenure uh, as president, what we did that was most significant was we cleaned up the database. Tell Andy that one, he'll, he'll get a chuckle. But because I wanted to do great things, but we cleaned up the database because it was such a mess. Because in the program that was printed at the time, they got my university name wrong. And that was because the database didn't have great information. In it. So that's what we did. So we made a decision to move uh, out of... Uh, DuPont Circle, and it was, I think, a high watermark in the uh, life of Coupa HR. We were struggling. We didn't have money to uh, do all the things that we needed to do, and there's an infamous three-stack exercise that Andy Brantley conducted while he was uh, chair or president of the association. You can ask him about that. It's infamous about what we needed to do, what we could uh, maybe do and what we didn't want to do anymore. And so we prioritize those sorts of things. Once we made that decision to move to Knoxville, um, the, we, we were able to hire a really good staff. We had some really good leaders. And um, from that particular change and transformation, uh, we began to grow significantly as an association to where Money isn't an issue anymore. We own our own building. We never thought we would have the ability to do that. And then it, it provided the avenues through which we could do a whole host of other things. So that's a super significant thing that we did. And then uh, I also chaired the strategic uh, planning committee for Coupa at one time. Um, there's another story, a long story about how I got the attention of, of the folks at the Associational Leadership Program by singing a song about um, Coupa HR strategic plan. We'll talk about that another day. But um, 
it said, it, it said songwriting back about 150 years. 150 but, uh, years. <laughs> but it certainly got their attention. And the one thing I remember about that is a colleague of, of mine that, that was there at the time, that's through the, everybody gave me a standing ovation. He shouted out above the, the clapping. He says, that's the bravest thing I've heard anybody ever do. <laughs> yeah. So I remember that uh, always. But um, we made a proposal to establish a knowledge center when I was chairing that strategic leadership uh, or strategic planning committee. And that was just because we needed to have something that would attract HR professionals from universities to Coop HR. And so the concept was, well, why don't we have a learning center to where they could come have a resource and they could tap into that resource and use that as professional growth. So uh, that came out of that planning uh, committee that I chaired. So, so as you can see, nothing, nothing that we did well, five years later could have been done without the, yeah. what, what um, Stuart did in his group. The, you, know, you can't become a staff-run organization like we've become when you have two or three staff and, and they're not, most of them are not very good. You, yeah. I mean, you couldn't even get a treasurer's report with any sense of accuracy at the time and we didn't have much money to even deal with but so everything you know we all built on the, the successes of our of our predecessors i know i can say i've, I've been a, a direct recipient of all of your hard work the knowledge center in of itself the um most recently with the um and i just lost the title of it the learning uh framework mm -hmm. uh, that is excellent. That would take me years to put together. Uh, and so I totally appreciate the work that Sissy and her team did in putting that together. And that was something that was highlighted at a conference a couple of, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago now. And yeah. I really appreciate it. I came right back and shared it with my staff. So we appreciate that. All right, so what skills have you learned or cultivated that have been most important in your success as a leader? Stuart, you can start with this one. Well, um, uh, Jack mentioned that while we started in Coupa, we became we we had to learn the skill of association and conference planning because we did all the work. Uh, the only thing that we didn't do at the time was negotiate the contract with the hotel. That was done by a staff member at Coupa HR, and she was very good at that uh, she took no prisoners in that regard. And in fact, generally didn't take any prisoners with us either. Uh, we did something wrong. That was my first introduction to Kubhr was dealing with her and I uh, had submitted a proposal to present and I, I, miraculously it was, uh, it was uh, accepted for the national conference in Chicago. I'd never attended a conference before. I didn't know what was expected and I didn't know whether I needed audio visual equipment or not. And so at the last minute I said, oh, I guess I better do it. And so I sent in a note to uh, this nice lady, Susan Reichbart was her name. And um, the next thing I know, she had dressed me down big time, telling me it costs money to get that kind of stuff. And what was I doing telling her at the very last minute? I said, yes, ma'am, I'm sorry. I'll bring it all myself. I'll just bring it from home university. Uh, but that's how it worked. Um, it was it was one of those things where a lot of hard work was invested by the regional boards and the people that uh, made up those regional boards. Each was different. Uh, we had a small board in the southern region, and uh, I was the program chair one year, so we had to, to develop the, the schedule and the agenda for all of that. 
Um, and then we had some joint conferences where we worked together on it. But you learned a lot of uh, a good skill and how to um, how to plan events and how to plan meetings. And I think that was uh, very valuable in my day. Um, consensus building is one of the things that we have to do at a university campus anyway. So it was a natural progression to build consensus for that board to do the things that we needed to do for um, the uh, region. And one of the most dynamic uh, and most challenging decisions that I had to make as a regional chair was um, we had a, a new individual, Maria Martinez, that joined us and Yana Chambers was also on the board. And we got into a big fight as to which type of conference bag we were going to have. Uh, <laughs> Maria wanted a beach bag and mm -hmm. Yana didn't. And so we debated that for two days as to what, what kind of bag we were going to have. And finally, uh, we made an yep. executive decision that we would go with the regular bag, <laughs> not the beach bag, but that was the most significant thing to come out of that conference planning event. Yeah, those, those all sound so familiar um, to, to when we had a, a, a conference in Montreal, uh, it was determined that our conference bags had been made in China. And therefore, there was a, uh, a tariff issue. <laughs> and in the, in the middle of the night, uh, our representative from upstate New York uh, loaded up a van with the bags <laughs> so that we could get them back into the United States. I mean, but these were the kinds of things you just dealt with as a, yeah. uh, as a professional. Uh, I, I would, uh, you know, again, uh, Stuart has, has captured very much of what we had to do. And one of the things that I mentioned earlier is that I'd never had a large staff. As a result of that, um, Cooper HR became my, um, my staff in a sense that the ability to share with others, the ability to learn from others that um, even though you're the director, you don't have to know everything. And there are other ways of doing things and learning how to be open to that. And then learning how to sell those ideas back in your institution. Because every idea sounds great when you're at a conference and then you come back and you have your own politics and your own budget limitations, et cetera. So learning how to deal with all of that and talking to people about how they, they did what they did. How did they successfully negotiate a new performance system? What did they use? Things of that nature. So there was that whole learning thing um, that took place in a, in a real life, real time environment uh, was a great learning piece uh, from Cooper HR. The other thing is developing and again, as I said, a lot of my work was negotiation, but it's one thing when you're dealing with a union, it's another thing when you're dealing with peers and telling the regions that they have to give up a member. Um, you know, when you wanna just say, it shall be thus, <laughs> but you're dealing with your peers mm -hmm. and they are as, um, at least as, as important as you in the organization, they are certainly as bright as you in the organization and they can understand the difference between BS and somebody making a power grab versus something that's good for the organization. So you have to learn how to um, deal at that level um, and develop that kind of respect. And that, again, to go back to the relationship building um, that's a huge piece of, of what you did. And you're developing relations with people you don't know. 
You know, you're establishing relationships with, you know, complete strangers. Uh, they only have this one CUPA or CUPAHR on their badge, and that's the only thing you know that you have in common. Uh, so that's what um, you had to learn to do to be successful, um, not just in the leadership level, but back in your own organization, mm -hmm. um, you know, how you had to be successful there. Wow. Thank you. Those are great. Um, what is one characteristic you think all HR practitioners should possess? Um, for me, it's openness and it's willingness to learn um, and willingness to um, uh, get away from the standard um, because we're all going to have staff that are going to tell us, what are the magic words, ladies and gentlemen? We've always done it that way. And so why do you not do things? And so to me, it's got to be that willingness to learn and to change and to take risk uh, in doing so. Um, but you can't do it coming into a meeting half cocked. Yep. So. And, and what I would add to that, I think those are, are, are very important, but um, you need to be an effective communicator. Um, if, if I don't, if I don't present that information well, it may be misconstrued. And just as Jack was talking about convincing the regions that they needed to give up a representative on the national board, that took some quality communication skill to do that. And, and so, um, you've got to be prepared as Jack mentioned, you, you have to be flexible as to uh, what happens as you build consensus because the, the, the plan that you might have started out with may change through that consensus building, but then you really have to be able to effectively communicate the, uh, the purpose and the intent of what you're trying to uh, uh, accomplish. And that, that's that back and forth that you bring, uh, that you had to bring those skills again to the the board of directors or the leadership positions you were in for Cooper HR. And then you had to bring what you learned from that back to your organization. So th there was this, you know, this, this steady stream back and forth. Um, and they were not two separate, disconnected, unrelated entities. They, they were very much um, a part of what you did. It was, uh, you know, an extra part in, with the good graces of your organization, uh, you were able to, um, to do that. Um, because that's uh, obviously, you know, you can never thank your organization enough for their willingness to give you up for the period of time that was necessary to do the work we did, especially the way we used to do that work. I agree. You definitely have to have support of your institution when you participate at a high level in Coupa. And right. so I know I'm grateful because I have that um, where I'm at. So what area of focus within the profession do you see as being the most influential and are poised for growth in the next 10 years? One of the things I think is, is really important to us today is the fact that uh, we are in a fractured world. There are disparate opinions on both sides, and I have friends on both sides um, that can look at one and look at the same thing and come away with a very different opinion about that information. And so I think there, as, as we look at the future, as we look at our campuses and as we look at the influence that we have, the ability to make um, 
uh, within the profession and within the organizations that we work. I think that ability to come together, bring disparate information together and coming up with a, a single solution or a, a, a solution that will be the best fit um, is extremely important to us. And that also gets to that diversity and inclusion uh, initiative as well, uh, because we, we want to make sure that we have the opinions of everybody and that we don't, uh, we don't silence the opinion because that opinion may be very different from uh, those that uh, have a, uh, an altered opinion. And so I think we've got to balance all that. We've got to be able to come to a point where we bring those parties together to uh, find a solution that works that will not alienate anybody or disenfranchise those that might not hold that same opinion. And, and link that in. So you link that into your workplace. Um, sometimes those opinions are again among amongst your peers, but oftentimes they are back to the old description of us being middle managers, um, that we are in the middle in, in being able to, to bring disparate um, uh, information and opinions from one group to the other, whether that's from um, the employees to management or management to the employees. Um, the ability to um, to have trust and um, know that when you are providing information, you can own what you provide. Um, and when you have to communicate an opinion that you don't necessarily agree with, but need to do so for the betterment of the organization, that you're able to do so in a way that doesn't blame individuals, but uh, seeks to get them to participate in it and buy into that um, what's going on. So it's, it's, it's recognizing as Stuart has, has well said that we've got this very obvious, uh, you know, uh, fracturing of, of how people see things and uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, and within higher education, they exist all over the place. You can take politics out of it and just deal with budgets, just deal with what happened since last March and how do we do, we do we do remote learning? Do we do hybrid? Do we, you know, everything in that, that sense. Um, the, the other thing is to never ever forget that we are only there to provide an environment in which uh, individuals can learn. That is our job. It is not our personal ownership of a particular system that's important. Our, our need to, uh, to have a higher position or to protect our staff. It is there for one purpose only. NEHR is only there to provide that the mission of the organization goes forward as smoothly as possible. So recognizing that and taking the ego out of what you do um, is, is so critical. Um, so many years I've seen examples of some saying, why do we do it? Because we've always done it that way. Well, why do you do it that way? Well, we did it that way because we needed to protect our staff. We needed to, uh, you know, make sure the work got done this way. Rather than looking at alternatives, it, it was back that this is what I had to protect. You can't be there. You can't be an island, you can't be a silo and be an HR. 
Um, so the, you need that thing and everything we've talked about, communication and all the other stuff, you, you can't do that without having those skills. Yeah, there, there's a, a comment that uh, Dave Ulrich has made many times before is that HR uh, individuals are cultural change agents. So we can choose to be the cultural change agent and try to bring parties together and communicate effectively without disparate bashing one side or the other. Um, and we can look at how we do the things as, as Jack was mentioning, how we function as a, an HR organization and protect that, or we can bring the culture together and, and move uh, towards a, a better culture, a more inclusive culture, uh, a, a culture that accomplishes what we are intending to accomplish. And that is to ensure that the future leaders of tomorrow are trained properly, get the education that they need and do it in, a, in as seamless a fashion as possible so that they don't have barriers to overcome to get there. And that we don't create those barriers. Right, exactly. <laughs> What has been your most enriching professional development experience? Well, a uh, um, couple things. Um, from being a participant in a professional enrichment experience, um, attending conferences and listening to individuals that are, uh, um, you know, that have come to a point in their careers and in our profession that just tell us how much is possible and, and how much is reasonable to, uh, to pursue. Um, to, uh, to recognize that we have capabilities, um, you know, sometimes far beyond what we believe in ourselves, that we can do more. And so being uh, charged to do that, to be, um, you know, enlisted to do those kinds of things, to, to, um, to be energized, to bring that kind of information back. Uh, any particular one, maybe I can't tell you, but I can tell you that the sum of those are um, that they, they bring you back to your organization with opportunities to try new things. The other side of it is um, over the years, um, I've taught, uh, I've taught labor relations. I've taught HR management. I've, uh, you know, any number of those as an adjunct uh, throughout almost without exception in the 32 years at the public higher ed, maybe 30 of them, I was an adjunct. Uh, I taught uh, one or another, in, whether in my institution or another. Um, so bringing people into seeing what is possible through HR, through labor relations, um, especially in the, when you're doing labor relations and you, and you can you start out the first class and you have people pro-union and those anti-union and getting them to figure out how all of that works. Um, the other is the training programs that I've done or created over the years for staff and uh, faculty and staff. Um, so all of those feel, feel great. I mean, to do what Aisha does on a regular basis was uh, was a goal. I graduated from a state college as an elementary school teacher. Um, so other than learning how to throw erases at kids, you know, there was always this interest in and in being able to be in the front of a classroom and um, and and talking with individuals and teaching individuals, whatever the age group was. And, and you know, I did many age groups, but uh, working with teaching adults um, 
I think would be, again, among the most uh, enriching of, of, you know, how I felt that I've done over the years and the number of individuals that I've talked to and, you know, that still get back to me occasionally on, on something that we did years ago. Yeah, um, this is a really nice question um, from, from my perspective. One of the first things that I did uh, to be introduced to Coop HR was, was a pretty fabulous event. I, I'd never heard of it before in the organization that existed at the University of Florida prior to 1989. I started in 82 there. And the director that we had at that time was very top down, didn't want you to work outside of your area, didn't want you to know about the other areas. And if you had an idea, he would tell you what that idea was. And you weren't to volunteer such things. I tried that a time or two being who I am. And I was told that I wasn't supposed to have ideas like that. I was supposed to just go to that, do that work. And then we had a new director that came on board and introduced us to Coupa and put us on a put me on a travel team to go to a conference and i'd never experienced this before seeing colleagues that uh, were like-minded that were suffering through or experiencing the same things that we were experiencing i thought just the the worst of the university of florida so oh my god you know we're suffering through all this nobody else has experienced this like we are and then i got to a conference and everybody was experiencing very similar things <laughs> so it was very nice to commiserate with them well, we had 75 people on staff at UF at the time. Uh, I got to go on that travel team once, maybe twice. And then I was told that if I expected to go on another trip, I had to submit a proposal for presentation. And I enjoyed the conferences and I wanted to go on those trips and I wanted to go places I'd never been before. So I started submitting proposals and got a, a, the first one was, as I mentioned before, was, was accepted as a, a Chicago national. And I presented there, had a great time. Uh, it was on our automated employment, the applicant tracking system and how that worked and what didn't work. And I submitted the same thing for my region and they rejected it outright. Uh, and then the next year I submitted a national proposal. I don't remember what that topic was. It was accepted and, and I had a great time. I believe that was in Vancouver. That was an awesome trip. And submitted the yeah. same thing to my region and they rejected me outright. And then the next time I, it was, it was, I think in San Diego at the time, and I submitted a proposal. It was accepted. I presented in San Diego and I had a great time in San Diego. I think that was the 50th year or something. 50th. Yeah, yeah. The 50th anniversary. Yep. Yep. And then I submitted it to my region and they rejected it outright. And so I'm out of ideas. The next year I submitted for uh, the national and I got rejected and I submitted it to the region and they rejected it anyway, just on good measure. <laughs> and so I'm out of ideas as to what, <laughs> then I'm going, how am I going to go, go back to these conferences? I'm enjoying this and the camaraderie and meeting these folks. And there is a board position for the region and uh, they made the, the fatal flaw of realizing they had rejected me for everything else. They should have rejected me for board service, but they didn't. <laughs> Fortunately, and, they did. And the next thing you know, I served 10 years on there. So it was the professional development of, of interacting with colleagues and peers uh, through presentations of what we were experiencing and how we were dealing with those issues there. Uh, was uh, certainly a, a important personal professional development uh, growth opportunity for me. And then the second part of that was actual board service. 
Um, my, I had a mentor at University of Florida that basically told me that uh, while I didn't actually know it or believe it at the time, he saw that I had the capability of being an HR director or VP. And he basically required me <clears throat> to get my master's degree. And he said, if you don't go to school, I'm going to, I'm going to rate your performance appraisal down because you need that to be able to advance. And he was a man of his word. I, I started working on it. He allowed me to work on it part-time. And uh, after that, I was able to promote into higher level positions, but then also with his approval, I was able to serve in uh, a you know regional and national role, and it was then the development of the good things that we were able to do with the understanding and and beginning to build the belief that I had the capability of doing more than what I had envisioned in the first, uh, in my view, as to my professional abilities, and then to be able to put it into practice through the board work and through the great association with uh, awesome friends like Jack. That was the other part of it for me. I would, I would like to have one other thing that, I, that just kind of occurred to me, and it, it was something that Stuart had mentioned, but the, uh, UMass Lowell at the time, and it was early on in my career there, we were doing a redesign and it was for the entire university, the whole UMass system it wasn't just our campus, but we were starting on each campus and, and I got put on a couple committees. Um, and what it taught me was how the organization ran, mm -hmm. not just how HR ran or my understanding of how the organization ran, but different things like if you don't offer a class then students have to go an extra semester. And that affects your retention. Mm -hmm. I'm no, sure, basics. But when you're in HR and you're dealing with just the employee side of the world and some of the student side of it, you don't get to see the whole mission. Mm -hmm. So you take care of the faculty, but if you don't understand the impact of what you're doing and how it affects everything that you may do, and, and, and then you bring that back to say, well, then these are the kind of people we need in this office and this office and this office, regardless of what the job description that the supervisor wrote was, you need to understand what are they doing financial aid? What are they doing admissions? What are they doing student services? And not just from a vague kind of understanding, but really. So by looking at reorganization, you had to learn what we did. And then you had to have the, the individuals who were the recipients of those services tell you, well, this doesn't work. Uh, this is what happens when you do that. We developed PeopleSoft some years later as a university. But without me understanding how everything worked within my organization, including how the finances work and everything else, how, where the budgets came from, I couldn't have participated in that in any kind of a meaningful way. So sometimes things come from the least expected uh, places. And when you're not looking uh, for them, uh, but they show up and they become available to you. And, it, you know, if, and if we have to, you know, change a little bit about what those skills are, it's got to be that willingness to learn and that mm -hmm. willingness to, you know, to say, Here's an opportunity. I guess I got to take advantage of this because it has to do with how the school and never let um, people say that doesn't apply to you. You're in HR. Right. Everything that happens in the university applies to you.
Yeah. And, and, and what I would add to that is it's becoming a student of the organization in which you work. Yeah. Because it, once I become a student and learn how it functions and, and the nuances between the different areas, that makes me a better professional in, in the role that I, I have. And, and you couldn't become a COO without being an effective HR person. Right, I agree. In fact, what, what has been the most surprising in that role, because I came through the non-traditional path that's generally finance people. I was not, I was an HR guy. Right. What I have found was about 60 to 65% of the issues that exist in the departments to report to me are HR issues. And so that background serves me very, very well in that particular role. That's great, yeah. I'd agree. I appreciate both of you so much. I, you know, just listening to the two of you has inspired me because I think, you know, Sherry and I are young in our board career as far as, you know, with Koopa and that. And just listening to the two of you and how you, the work that you did transform the organization to what we are receiving today as, you know, emerging leaders, but just as members of the organization. And I appreciate that work and, and, and it inspires me. And when I think about, you know, all how Koopa has changed, um, since you all joined and, and got involved with the board and what's being delivered to us today and then what we can do moving forward. I'm, I'm excited about the opportunities. I'm excited about being an emerging leader. I'm grateful to you all for the work that you do and for what you've contributed because the things that you did with Coupa, not only did you grow yourselves and, and the organization, but all the people that are members of the organization, we're all learning from what you did. And so I appreciate that. And we just wanna say thank you to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for sharing your insights and for all the hard work that you've put in with Koopa and your own careers and helping others to really um, get to where they need to be. And of course, with our students and helping our students to be successful across the country. So thank you so much to both of you. Sure. One, pleasure. One last closing comment that I would make is that um, the last thing I did for Koopa HR as a board member was chair the search committee that hired Andy Brantley. Mm. And I think Andy's a good friend. He was a friend before he was appointed CEO, but the appointment of Andy and, and uh, the restructuring of the board that Jack talked about, um, making sure that it was uh, it was strategic and not operational, and the vision that was brought that has made a significant difference. And so one of the things that I would leave you with is that in any role that you take on as a professional, um, what you want to do is to make a difference in that role. And then when you leave that role to leave it better than you found it. And I think uh, I can, I can, uh, I know from Jack's experiences, that's what he and his board did. And I believe that's what uh, uh, my board and I did at the time. And it, it was a gift of uh, giving back to the profession that has so rewarded us so well. It was, it was Stuart's last act. It was one of my first acts was bringing Andy on. Because I was on that board that uh, did hire him, mm -hmm. um, and it and it was a process that, um, you know, that you that HR would might not have followed typically, um, because it was one where through the work of of Stewart and and folks that knew Andy, uh, brought Andy to that. Um, uh, to applying for that position or to, to that position because it wasn't something that he had done on his own, you know, right. by just, and people, other people had, and they were decent candidates, but 
they would have kept the organization where it was. Yeah. Um, and, you know, by people like Stuart who recognized that talent that was there, um, I knew Andy a little bit, but didn't know him well enough to say, boy, that's the person I think is going to come. But once we got into the interviewing process and got to meet him, then we knew that we were bringing on the right person. It's been a blessing to the organization. It, oh, true. Yeah. So thank you so much for both, to both of you. We appreciate it. You're very it. welcome. It thank great. you. Enjoyed it. Nice meeting you both.